This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome back to the WOMED, my world changers. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Danielle Ballardo. She is a cardiologist proudly using her platform for education. Dr. Ballardo and I have an honest conversation around being advocates, how to talk to our aging parents about heart health, and her mad love for nurses, just to name a few. I love how honest and unbiased Dr. Ballardo's delivery is. I hope you're excited. Let's go. All right, guys, I got to be honest. I have been struggling a bit lately with nursey energy. I think most of you get the play on words, but if you don't, men have their big dick energy, but I'm all about reclaiming that for women. So that's where nursey energy came from. I want WOMED listeners to make this space their own and share their stories and moments that make them feel empowered and showered in strength, especially now. Maybe it's all the queer eye I've been binging, but I want to know what you're doing to lift and empower the women around you. I want to know what you're doing to be an ally in your community. Do it right now. Stop this podcast. Send me a DM of how you're showing up. Quarantine is lonely. I like messages. Okay, press play again. What practice are you joining? Is that the IOPBM? Yeah. So I finished cardiology fellowship this week, actually. I was (gasps) just working on- Congratulations. Thank you. I was just working on my uh, credentialing now with like all the procedures I've done and all this stuff. But yeah, I have graduation Thursday. And so that's been six years of post-medical school training because to be a cardiologist, you do three years of internal medicine and then three years of cardiology fellowship. So I'm finally done. And then my husband and I are moving out to SoCal. We're going to be in Newport Beach, California. I'm joining a practice there called um, IOPBM. It's the Institute of Plant-Based Medicine. And we're essentially all physicians and registered dietitians that are in various subspecialties. Um, We have gastroenterology, rheumatology, neurology. I'm cardiology. We have internal medicine, pediatrics, all different specialties. And we are all either vegan or very plant predominant, plant focused. Um, And so we combine essentially nutrition with general guideline directed medical and procedural therapy to help patients that are really looking for disease prevention, disease reversal, and things like that. So I've known the doctors I'm going to practice with for quite some time. And so I'm excited to be able to do this. We're all kind of on the same page, uh, like-minded in in the area of prevention we work in. So it's exciting. Oh, that is so fascinating. I have been one who I've tried so hard to be more plant-based. I even tried to go a month in January uh, and not eat anything meat. I, I tried to be a vegetarian. I still ate cheese and eggs. So I don't know if yeah. that's still yeah. counts, no, but yeah, that's okay. It was it was really difficult for me. I, I found no, my, yeah. my body was like craving meat, like it was craving protein. And I don't, I don't know if that was just that I wasn't aware of the right proteins I should be eating and, and consuming. I did a lot of tempeh. And, and oh, I, I love tempeh. <laughs> oh, it's so good. You put it's that so with a little good. Frank's uh, red yeah. hot. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Absolutely. You, you do not need to go 100% plant-based to see many, many, many health benefits. So mm-hmm. um, plant-based nutrition, like a lot of things is dose dependent. And there's, there's so many variables in nutrition science that make you know, um, a lot of things controversial, et cetera. But one thing that our dietary guidelines across the board, especially our cardiovascular disease guidelines do recommend is plant predominant diets. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, plant-based, a full plant-based diet, which I follow, I'm hundred percent vegan, falls into that. But you don't need to go hundred percent vegan to see the health benefits and to reduce your risk for certain diseases. And there's also a big difference between healthy plant-based diets and unhealthy plant-based diets. And there's a lot of nutrition science and literature uh, published on this, you know, for example, Oreos are vegan and French fries, <laughs> <laughs> French fries are vegan, but they're definitely not healthful for you. So right. it's, uh, you know, it's having a well-planned 
plant-based diet can be beneficial or plant predominant diet, but you know, no one has to feel the pressure to go hundred percent plant-based. Um, I have patients that have gone hundred percent and they're incredibly happy. I have patients that have gone 80% and they feel incredibly happy, but I think the general consensus of science does tell us that uh, this is with systematic reviews and uh, randomized controlled trials really tells us that the more plants you eat, the better. It doesn't have to be a hundred percent, but you know, plant foods definitely have many benefits from everything from cancer prevention. Uh, actually, the American Cancer Society just came out with new uh, dietary guidelines that recommends eliminating red meat, processed foods, processed meat, so any sort of lunch meat, and upping fruits, vegetables, uh, whole grains, legumes, things like that for cancer prevention, similar to our cardiovascular disease guidelines and prevention guidelines. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Uh, so don't feel bad about it. If it was, if it was, uh, you know, tricky for you, it's, it's just, um, everyone's got their own level of plants in their journey. And so I just, I always say just, you know, more plants is better than less and yeah, don't, don't stress out too much about it. (laughs) Well, that's good. Cause I feel like I'm a lot better about eating vegetables which That's is great. weird for me than I am about eating fruits, but I'm so picky and I've always been a picky eater. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I love pears and apples and pineapple and everything else. If I'm going to eat, it, it's got to be blended up in a smoothie. So I can't tell the texture of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm not like a crazy fruit. Per- I like some fruit, but I'm not a crazy, crazy fruit person either. I, I tend to like more vegetables as well. I know. I like. I can't eat enough like carrots and celery sticks. And yeah. I don't. I will say this wrong, but it's that. I think it's like tajin or tahine or something that they put on the rim of like spicy margaritas. You you dip some like carrot or like celery sticks in that, and you crunch on that. It's like the perfect little <laughs> spicy, salty little kick to <laughs> kick to your veggies. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So tasty. So tasty. <laughs> What's kind of been your pathway to medicine? How did you decide on cardiology, being a doctor? Yeah. So I do not come from a family of physicians. Uh, no one in my family is a doctor, but I just kind of gravitated towards science and then decided to just kind of go to medical school and took my prerequisites and applied. And then um, once I was in medical school, I really liked a lot of my rotations, but it was kind of like, I knew which ones I didn't want to do. I wasn't really that interested in psych, although it's fascinating. And I loved my rotation. I just didn't think I wanted to do it for a career and same with surgery, but I really liked my cardiology rotation. And actually during med school, my dad, who was incredibly healthy and knock on wood is doing great. But um, during my third year of med school, my dad, who's like a super healthy runner, he's like, been in like the top 10 for like New York triathlons, like even oh, in his fifties, wow. like he, he's just crazy on his like eighth mile of running was starting to have these weird, uh, shortness of breath kind of symptoms. Mm. And as a third year med student, I didn't really understand what that meant yet. And so I was like, well, he's like, maybe I'm getting asthma. I was like, you're not just suddenly developing asthma. I know that much um, mm-hmm. in your sixties or early sixties or whatever. And so uh, I sent him to his primary care provider who sent him for a tra- stress test and his stress test was positive. So he ended up having a cardiac catheterization, which is a procedure we do. Uh, nowadays we go through the rest back then that was like seven or eight years ago. Um, they were still going through some places were still going through the groin, but we go through your wrist with a catheter and we're able to, uh, go up to your coronary arteries. So the arteries that feed the heart and, um, take a look and see if there's something causing a heart attack. And so when my dad had this procedure done, um, he had a 99% blockage of his right coronary artery, which is like the most important, well, one of three of the most important yeah. coronary arteries. We have three main ones. Um, and so he got a stent, which is just a little device that we um, deploy in the artery to open it up. And he's been doing great ever since. He's back to running. He runs like, you know, 
five to seven miles a day. He's 70 oh, now and you know, my mom are crazy healthy, but it was interesting. What was interesting to me is that, you know, with, so that was actually one of the things that made me want to go into cardiology. Mm-hmm. And then what I started to, it was very surprising to me because I've been vegan for a long time, same with my sisters, but my parents weren't vegan at the time, but I always, they are now, but I always <laughs> considered my parents super healthy. Like, even though they're omnivores, they're really healthy omnivores. Like, I mean, they're athletes, like they were always eating like fruits, vegetables, like ton of greens, but also you know, red meat, chicken, whatever, but um, mm-hmm. never fried processed foods. And so I was so surprised because I was thinking in my head, I'm like, wow, like he doesn't have diabetes, he doesn't have high blood pressure, yeah. he barely had high cholesterol. And how did he get a 90% blockage? <laughs> yeah, 99. And so, wow. you know, I'll, you know, of course there's components that are genetic, but you know, this is when I convinced my dad and my mom to go vegan because, you know, he needs, there's of course a genetic component to it, especially with mm-hmm. how healthful he is. But at the end of the day, he doesn't need any more added cholesterol. And uh, I won't get into the biochemistry of it. There's a lot that goes into the reason why plants help with cholesterol and cardiac disease in general. But, you know, I, I wanted him to switch his diet and I just, I advocated for it and he did. And of course I, you know, he stayed on the correct medications. I am a very, very advent believer of evidence-based medicine. In addition to nutrition, I never Mm -hmm. like when people, I think I I posted on Instagram recently about how, you know, some patients get told they can stop their medications from like these random Instagram influencers because they're, uh, you know, eating healthy again, et cetera. So I do not like that. Um, so he's on his cardiac medications forever, just for his blood thinning and his statin, but he's now vegan. My mom's vegan. They're super healthy. They love it. And so it kind of, not only made my interest in cardiology. And so when I started my internal medicine residency, I knew I wanted to go into cardiology, but um, it also made me, you know, really think about how important nutrition is in disease prevention, but also not even just preventing disease and helping patients who have disease to help them from having another cardiac event. 80% of cardiovascular disease in general overall is preventable with nutrition and lifestyle modification. So Um, That's really why I love cardiology. It's kind of how I got there. That's amazing. It just feels like now is, is, you know, a a woman in her thirties, you know, watching my parents like start to get older. I feel I feel that like a little bit of added stress, but it's so difficult to get them to listen to me on things that they need to do for, you know, healthy Mm -hmm. lifestyle changes. Yeah. (laughs) And even as a nurse, like, I mean, I got my grandma who is also a nurse to like, start wearing Ted hose and, and stuff Amazing. like that, but I can't get my parents to like, <laughs> to not eat a, a massive cheeseburger each or, you know, <laughs> followed with like a big potato and a slice of steak and <laughs> trying to, uh, trying to talk to my parents about like healthy eating lifestyles has been a challenge. Like my yeah. dad hates vegetables. I mean, like, I feel like a <laughs> I feel like such a mom when I go home and I'm like, all right, dad, like I see everything that you just had, but you have to at least eat a spoonful of broccoli. (laughs) It's a tough dynamic. I've had quite a few patients because I started Pennsylvania's first plant-based preventive cardiology clinic, which um, I did. I was thankfully my cardiology fellowship was incredibly um, supportive and allowed me to start this clinic where people came from everywhere to see me that really wanted to go vegan and modify their risks for cardiovascular disease, whether or not they had, or um, before they had an event or had one already. So when I did this, you know, I had patients a lot of times, more times than I can count patients that were, I want to say dragged there by their daughter, who was either a nurse or a doctor <laughs> who follows me on social media and was like, you need to convince my dad to eat something green. <laughs> yeah, and I, I get it. I totally get it. I mean, um, even my dad, I used to give him like a hard time even about steak because me and my sisters have been vegan for so long. I used to give him a hard steak, a hard time about steak even before um, his, uh, like before he had the stent placed and mm-hmm. he used to just kind of brush it off. But once he actually had a cardiac event, being a runner and being so healthy already, he realized, okay, well, this is some lifestyle modification that I can already make. And I, and I think that an important thing is like for parents, especially is that the important thing isn't like, I would never advise anyone try to change anyone a hundred percent or, you know, um, it's just not sustainable life change. People have to change because they 
want to change. But I think that Mm -hmm. what we can do to help people change is give them little actionable changes they can make, like little swaps. It doesn't have to be like, you give up me completely starting tomorrow. It can be like, you know, just once a week, can you just try this recipe? And it's made from tempeh with some vegetables in there or whatever. Could you just give up cheese, like switch to a plant-based cheese, say for example, instead of regular dairy, just like twice a week and just give it a try because some of them are really amazing. Um, And so just small changes add up and then people start to notice when they start to make, and this is, I've seen this over three years consistently without fail. So when people start to make small changes and they start to feel better from small changes, they actually want to make more of those changes. And then there's Mm -hmm. no one that has to convince them. It's all of a sudden they are like, you know, driving that train and they want to go in a more healthful, you know, direction. And so, yeah, I, I always say, you know, no one needs to give up animal products forever. Although that's what I've done. I have tons of patients that have done that, but mm-hmm. really just make small amounts of changes that can add up. And I think those are more manageable for, for parents who are kind of, you know, a little stuck in their ways. <laughs> Well, that's really good advice because I I haven't been home in a minute because of COVID. Right. And I'm planning a trip in the, well, in like the next month, I'm going to go home for a little over a week. And I plan on, you know, I'm going to be the one that's cooking and showing them like, yeah. okay, these are like, <laughs> these are great yummy recipes that we can do. And, I love it. Yeah. They don't know what they're in for. That's it's fine. Amazing. Okay, I have never been much for video games, and I have had a lot of fun doing research, as I like to call it, on Best Fiends. It's like friends without the R. Best Fiends is casual and anyone can play, but it's made for adults. The puzzles are super challenging and fun, and I like to play on my lunch breaks. And now I'm on around like level 300, not to brag. I love it. It helps me use my brain on a whole other level. Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. It also doesn't require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or using cell data. With Best Fiends, you can engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me. With over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So have you been working during COVID? I was not able to. Okay. If I was still working in the hospital, I would have, you know, been. But I uh, left the NICU a little over a year ago, but I've been working in an aesthetic clinic doing Botox and... Oh, training with that. like, oh my God, it's so cool. It, there's so, there's cool. so many, so many neat things that you can do. So cool. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm <laughs> learning a ton and it's great to be in an environment that I feel supported in. <laughs> yeah. So. And you're like, when you get into that space, I always tell like all my friends in the plastic surgery space, dermatology space, like when you get in that space, you become like part science part artist and it's like yes. really like a skill like it's I give such you guys a so cool balance yeah. I love it I'm learning all the things cool but obviously our clinic had to shut down during well we, we were shut down for I think about a month and a half <laughs> so that was strange right, right. but it felt it felt good to be able to get back to work but it also just feels weird like right. there's uh, the whole concept of like the new normal with everything with COVID and, you know, uh, influencers wanting to get back to posting their regular stuff in. And it's like, come on, people, there's so much that's going on right now that like yep. we have to create this new normal because like this old normal saw, you know, people just living and not truly caring and empathizing with, you know, what was happening in the black communities yes. and huge medical disparities. And it's like, how can we have to create this new normal? We have to create this new normal in relations to COVID and in relations to how, especially in the medical community, people of color are treated. Yes. It's so true. So yeah, disparities in healthcare are real. And I think everything we've seen with George Floyd being murdered and Mm -hmm. um, everything that's happened over, I mean, I hate to say over the last few months, because for 
people in the black community, they've been living this for years and years and years and years and years. And so I don't want to minimize it by saying, oh, it's just been the last few months. I mean, people in the black community have been suffering with racial injustice, systemic racism forever. And Mm -hmm. um, I feel for me personally, although I've always considered myself an ally to people in the black community, I realized that like, wow, I haven't until everything happened with George Floyd. I don't feel like I have been vocal enough about how important this is. Mm-hmm. Although I trained at Temple in North Philly where all of my patients are black and I love them so much. And I think that this is really important that um, healthcare providers, every specialty, no matter what they work in and no matter where they work, vocalize that it is a health issue, just like COVID. Because mm-hmm. you know, even every single cardiovascular society we have, um, the American Society of Echo, American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the American um, College of Black Cardiologists, you know, all came out with statements saying that this, that racial injustice, systemic racism, this is a health issue, and mm-hmm. it really leads to so many disparities um, in healthcare uh, in our patients from everything from what their access is to food, what their access is to jobs, what their access is even to medical care. It's all really complex dynamic system that needs a lot of overhaul and change. So I have been happy to see a lot of physicians on social media and nurses on social media and different healthcare providers on social media kind of speaking out about how this is important. And I do feel like our generation, um, I've been to a few protests here in Philly and I feel like felt so much energy from them, positive energy. I felt like everyone really is, our generation is really ready for change. And so, I, so too. I, I, I agree with you that uh, going back to business as usual feels strange. I don't think we'll ever have just business as usual. I think for me personally, and it sounds like for you too, that this will always be a part of advocacy from now on. Mm-hmm. And for me, Part of what our clinic is doing, besides me seeing patients in our office and being a cardiologist, we're doing education programs online where we have courses that we're submitting for CME. Uh, so, you know, help different healthcare providers can get CME credit for them, et cetera. But yeah, I think you just saw you post on that. Oh, right? yeah, yeah. Other part of our, our course design is that we actually are going to have uh, an entire program about. I have one of my greatest friends. Her name is Sadema Tar. She's an amazing foot and ankle surgeon. She's black, she's vegan, and she is very passionate about using plant-based nutrition in the black community. So we're going to have entire courses designed for advocacy for plant-based nutrition in the black community, misconceptions about nutrition, um, all sorts of different information, um, culturally appropriate and sensitive. And we have a scholarship program that if anyone's listening, that's a healthcare provider and you have a patient that is black that you think would not be able to afford our online courses, we are happy to give them the courses for free. Just send us an email um, at, do you mind if I give the email address? No, please. Okay. I'm, I'm about to write it down just yeah. so I can put it in the episode notes. Amazing. Um, you can send us an email at scholarships at snellblardomd.com. Through this program, um, we're having physicians or nurse practitioners or PAs, any healthcare provider, if you nominate a patient of yours that is Black, that uh, you do not think would be able to afford our online courses, we're going to give them access to them for free. Uh, And then anyone else that's just interested in our courses, we're at learn.iopbm.org. So we, for me, it's going to be a huge part of my mission, no matter what I do. Um, I think if anything this happening has made me wake up and realize, wow, maybe I wasn't as vocal enough about this for long enough. You know, this should have been a part of my discussion in healthcare always. Um, Even though I consider myself someone who cares a lot about disparities in healthcare, I think that this kind of woke up a lot of us to want to be better allies, better advocates um, during this important time. I could not agree with that statement more. Like I've Again, like I've I've been one who's, you know, always tried to to be a voice for, you know, the voiceless and, you know, go on these like medical mission trips and stuff, which I've had to do a lot of soul searching on, too, with the whole white savior complex. But Mm -hmm. I was also just listening to the 1619 podcast this morning and I tagged it in the WOMED and it was the episode on like how like the whole concept of bad blood got started. And they talk about how, you know, people think all this stuff is in the past, but I mean, like Medicare only just 
came into effect in the 1960s, and that is one of the major things that desegregated a lot of hospitals. Wow. Like, just think about that for a second. It's crazy. It's so crazy. I mean, it's just so crazy that 1967, was that when interracial marriages were finally allowed? I don't want to get the date wrong, but I, I thought I read I know what something. you're talking about with like Loving Day. Yeah. Um, um, I'm not sure the year on that, but that again, it's like, this is all within the last 60 oh, years. It's so, it's so recent. It's like so our recent. parents' lifetimes. It's crazy. Like that, that's how recent this is. And I don't think a lot of people fully comprehend that, that, you know, this is, this has been going on for, for so long and continues to. So I, I think that's so important. I love that you're doing that, that you're making those resources more available because the podcast was talking about this other study that had been done showing that even a black patient being treated with diabetes and a white patient being treated for diabetes by the same doctor, the black patient still had a poorer outcome. Oh my gosh. Like just that, like just breaks my heart. It just like, like there's just, there's so much inherent racism that like we all face that like, we just need to, we need to acknowledge that as absolutely as white people and and especially as as white healthcare providers 100% i think it's also super important to like with regards to diversifying our instagram feeds but also our professional lives and mm-hmm. for me it's like i'm not going to sit there and teach a course to black people about how to go plant-based when I cannot understand what it's like to grow up black with regards to the different cultural factors mm-hmm. that go into food, et cetera. That's why I feel like what you're talking about, like the white savior, you know, complex, et cetera. I mm-hmm. want to bring in and uplift black people in medicine who are passionate about this. And that's why we have mm-hmm. um, Dr. Tar, who's going to be, she's a black female surgeon who is such a badass. She's amazing. And she's vegan. And she is passionate about this and she can speak to it. Um, because for me, I, I'll never understand what it's like growing mm-hmm. up black in America. Um, and with, you know, different access to food issues and the cultural, uh, things that surround it. And so, you know, I think uplifting black people in medicine, whether they're nurses, doctors, um, pharmacists, RTs, just uplifting, um, our black colleagues in medicine is super important. Not only do we learn so much from them, but it, they also just need to be elevated, uplifted, and their voices amplified so everyone can learn more from them. Um, and I think yes. that's really important. Yeah. And they can be seen more as, as figureheads and stuff in their community so that they can, you know, empower the next generations after them. For sure. Absolutely. I love it. I knew we would get <laughs> along. <laughs> Who showed me yours? I think Tammy, Nurse Tammy, and I did an interview with her. She was talking about how vocal you were um, with everything related to COVID. And yeah. I was like, okay, I need another like, like-minded like person. Then I started following you because of her. And I was like, yes, this <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just as a nurse who's trying to, you know, has tried to, to talk about it and have these discussions on and provide like some knowledge on her platform to have like another woman doing the same thing and then finding more and more people in the medical community like debunking everything that you know our current yes person in charge is so true (laughs) this pandemic has been like excruciating I think for people in medicine for the Mm -hmm. fact that there is just so I've never felt like I've all so I've always felt like misinformation is out there and it's dangerous Mm -hmm. especially in the medical space it's so hard to be a non-medical person and like and be a consumer of this information because you don't know who to trust you don't know who to believe uh and it's really confusing so I really empathize with everyone out there that's kind of like well I mean this person says this this person says that who do I believe but this pandemic took scientific communication and misinformation to the next level. And I was cringing. I was cringing from people in the vegan community who were putting out immune booster food 
posts. I mean, listen, I've been vegan for like 12 years, uh, like 11 years. And it's like, I literally use plant-based nutrition in my patient Celery juice for cures COVID. But these do not cure COVID. <laughs> yes, it drove me insane. Medical medium who has now blocked me but he puts out <laughs> such pseudoscience and I have so, yeah. it drives me crazy because you should not be selling false nutrition information on social media because it's dangerous. And people think mm-hmm. this is going to protect them. And I'm personally, I've been on the front lines of COVID. I've seen patients die yeah. of COVID and it is- Because there's such a huge it, cardiac component with it. Well, it's, it's, there's a lot we still don't know about it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there's so much we don't know. There's like uh, a lot of it's this underlying cytokine storm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of blood clotting that happens. Yes. Um, it exacerbates things with people with chronic medical conditions. Although we see it in patients with without medical conditions, it really causes you know lung injury, um, mm-hmm. acute respiratory distress syndrome, and so there's this whole host of things that you know it's a novel virus with that's never been seen in humans before. It's spreading rapidly. And then you have people on social media sharing misinformation. I mean, even worse than the celery juice is the people that were saying it's not real. It's 5G. Yes. Uh, I mean, I couldn't, it's it was political, like playing whack-a-mole. It's made I up. up with it. Oh my God. It was painful. <laughs> it's like, yeah, those 118,000 people so far that have died in America alone are, <laughs> we just made them up. Right. And now there's anti-mask people and mm. oh, people who say like, oh, like you can't, oh my gosh, I just saw, you know, some of my followers would send me like someone saying, oh, if you wear a mask all day, you get carbon monoxide poisoning. And I was like, that's so crazy. I've literally spent years of my training wearing a mask in the cath lab yeah. in procedures, like wearing a mask, like 12 hours of the day. I'm fine. Like, it's just mm-hmm. the the misinformation out there is is wild. And during a pandemic, it upsets me the most because, uh, you know, to see people who get sick as a result of, of mm-hmm. following misinformation, it just drives me crazy. I am actually happy to see that some of the social media networks like um, YouTube even started to censor videos on Facebook and did a good job with, uh, I think they tried, they made an effort to get rid of misinformation. And I am all about First Amendment rights. Okay. I am... Uh, quite a liberal gal, and I am not about taking away people's First Amendment rights, but scientific and medical misinformation kills patients. Yes. And we see it firsthand and it is not okay. The other issue that happened with the pandemic too, is that even scientific research was at an accelerated rate because we're in this pandemic that's new. It's a novel virus. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're all like us on the front lines. We're just trying X, Y, Z to see if this works, see if anything sticks. So our, our research that we normally base everything we do on from randomized control trials, from systematic reviews, from, you know, really just diligent to work wasn't, we weren't able to do that. So a lot of the preprints that came out before peer review were based on, you know, things like co- small cohort samples, small case studies, things like that. And so, hmm. you know, things like, uh, not to get political, but things that our president would sometimes misinform would be based on small cohort studies. So every doctor is sitting there cringing when he would say, you know, take X, Y, or Z. Um, and one of the biggest, you know, flops of this pandemic that drove most of us physicians crazy was the hydroxychloroquine thing. I mean, I had mm-hmm. patients with lupus who could not fill their medication because people were starting to hoard it. Oh my God. And it wasn't even based on a randomized control trial or any good data. And and mm-hmm. our president just, you know, had said it. So it was, it's, it was a really, it's a really tough time in scientific communication. It still is, but I think this highlighted a big need for increased scientific literacy across mm-hmm. um, the country and um, increased literacy in medical education. I actually think I, I'm never, to be honest with you, was someone that ever watched the news, but obviously during the pandemic, we kind of all did. And I thought Sanjay Goop, Gupta did, I don't know if anyone, or if you watched him, but I thought he did a great job of really like just keeping the public informed in a really easy to understand way. Oh, I yeah. honestly hadn't watched, I, well, I don't have cable. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I haven't <laughs> kept up too much with like actual news. Yeah. Like sources I've read, like a lot of like articles and stuff like yes, that. But yes, as yes. far as like the televised things, I haven't seen too much of unless you know those outlets posted their quick you know segments on an instagram and stuff like that which speaks to a whole new like way of people consuming their news like good or bad but so true but again that can all be misled because of you know biases in different 
news corporations. Yes, absolutely. I never, I've never been someone that really watches the news ever. Um, Mm -hmm. I just have been so busy in my medical training. And this is the first time I've kind of, me and my husband have been like, well, we like watched a lot of the news. The way we consume information, whether it's social media, et cetera, everything has a bias, but it's, it's one thing because, you know, medical, so Twitter is one, is a great place for medical information with regards to, you know, in historically physicians, and I'm sure nurse Twitter, I think nurse Twitter is huge and amazing. Um, physicians, we have, you know, cardio Twitter, med Twitter, where everyone shares conferences, medical information, and the rate of information that was released on Twitter was actually incredibly helpful during the pandemic mm-hmm. because people will be sharing CT scans, um, but the rate of information is so fast that, you know, it can get really confusing for someone not in medicine who doesn't understand what robust research is or clinical mm-hmm. trials. So that's where I think it got really messy. And plus you add the conspiracies to that. And it was oh, just, yeah. it was, it was rough. <laughs> it's just been like a moment where you just have to, you just have to take a breath and be like, yeah. Okay. And next thing I need to debunk here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The whole concept of, you know, not wearing a mask even, it's just, I don't know. And and there's different things. Like, I feel like, I mean, everything, if if you're going to be looking for anything online, like just look at where it's coming from. You have to at least research that Google the names of the people who have written it or who are quoted in it and, you know, find out their educational backgrounds so that like you can make a concise and like educated determination on things. And you know, what's really hard about right now and not to like dishearten your listeners, but what's really hard right now is that even people we had really previously, so we have people not in science viewing this information, 5G, whatever. And then even people that we had previously all really respected in science. For example, mm-hmm. John Ioannidis, who is this Stanford researcher that, I mean, I always thought his research takes, I didn't love it, nutritional epidemiology, but he was quite a respected researcher. And mm-hmm. even he has totally like, he, the hill he was going to die on was that COVID wasn't that dangerous. And he wrote, he, it started out with him writing like an op-ed in like the Wall Street Journal or something like that. Um, and then about how COVID is not that dangerous. And then he stuck mm. to that hypothesis. He did a bunch of research that was botched. His The assay he used for the sampling at Stanford was like the, the immunologist who worked with them was like, I'm not even going to put my name on this paper because it's so bad. Then he started just making the rounds on the Fox News. And he oh, just, wow. you know, he just started to, he's a respected, he was a respected scientist who just started to fit the narrative of COVID's not dangerous without objectively looking at the data mm-hmm. or without without good data. And so even trusted scientists all of a sudden, I mean, the the journal of medicine just had a massive retraction. (laughs) So it's like even regular science that we can usually trust mostly, um, even has started to be shaky during this pandemic. So it's like, I mean, if you are a consumer out there of information, it is tough. It's tough to know, uh, to who to listen to. So, I mean, and even, I'm sure you can agree, even, mm-hmm. and I think every physician and nurse listening can agree that even during this pandemic, sometimes the WHO and the CDC, like you want to be able to rely on them. First, they said like doctors need just surgical masks. Then it was N95 masks. Then it was back to surgical masks. I mean, it's because the pandemic was happening so fast and it's so new yeah. that I think everyone is, you know, it, it gets it gets tough to sort through all of it. I think that the good news is that now we have amassed a good amount of data to help us figure out what does help us prevent the spread of COVID. And um, Mm -hmm. I think at this juncture, we really do know um, there's so much robust data for the fact that wearing a mask helps to reduce the transmission. It reduces the R naught of the transmission of the virus. Um, So it's not necessarily going to protect you from getting it, but it's going to reduce the spread of it. So wearing a mask distancing yourself, physical distancing six feet. So even I've been um, very loud and publicly speaking about how um, going to, pro- I mean, my husband went to three protests for Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. it's perfectly safe as a physician. Um, I advocate for, if you want to um, advocate for, you know, black lives and human rights, which I think is so important, you can do so if you stay six feet away, which I was fully able to do. We stayed six feet away from everyone Mm -hmm. and we wore masks and we wore, um, there are people handing out masks. Yes. It was amazing. 
People were handing out masks. People were handing out water, hand sanitizer. Like, yes, you know, people care. Yeah. And and like I got I got a bit of flack for that too. Like, how can you, as a medical professional who has spoken so passionately about the dangers of COVID, be you know going to these protests? And I'm like, at a certain point, it's like racism is a pandemic that also needs to be fought. But there are ways you can protest safely. Exactly. I got the same kind of flag from people in it. And you no, know, it's just, it, it's the idea that, you know, I try to keep saying, you know, protest, people that were protesting, they're going out protesting for, you know, a haircut. It's not the same as people mm-hmm. protesting for a black man being murdered for over eight minutes on national television. We all were able to watch him be murdered. I mean, that is just yeah. to imagine what black people in America have gone through for years and years and years and years and years. And the fact that it's reached this boiling point, I, I think the protests have been, have been more than needed and mm-hmm. it is a human rights issue and um you can do it like you said you can do it safely every protest i went to everyone was wearing masks i yes. i mean everyone it was so amazing to see um so i i totally agree with you i think it, it's an important distinction to be made that you can support the protests and be a healthcare provider who's worried about covid and actually in new york city has done an amazing job they opened 15 new testing centers just for people that were protesting la has reopened all their testing centers they have free testing for everyone um there's amazing. just a lot of resources for testing too um and you know of course not everyone can go out and protest which i understand if you have um if you live with someone that's immunocompromised if you yourself mm-hmm. are immunocompromised mm-hmm. if you have chronic illness or if you just don't want to you can still make a change from home from your computer with your money where you put your money you know supporting companies that, that are um led by black uh, individuals supporting and uplifting black professionals black businesses there are many ways to support um but i do think that too many people jumped on the, oh, well, now doctors are saying you can go outside. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the you same still thing. Have to be careful. Like you still yes. have to use common sense there. And, and that's what I feel like is, is lacking a lot is, is common sense. Yes. And, oh man, there's, there's so many things that like, I wish I could say about some of this stuff, but I'm going to alienate so many people. I- no, well, listen, we're not alienating. Like even for your no. listeners, even if you're incredibly, you know, listen, I have friends of all over the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. I have friends who love, you know, I have some friends who love Trump. And, you know, even though, as you can probably tell from my tone, I, I'm not a huge fan, but I have friends that, that, that like him and I'm in cardiology, which generally tons of cardiologists are, are very conservative. Listen, this isn't even a political issue. I think for every healthcare provider, for every nurse, every doctor, for us, this is like a, a human rights issue. As mm-hmm. a healthcare provider, you go into scientifically medicine because, proven human rights. Yes, issue. yes, and you go into medicine because you want to help people, you want to see people live. And I feel mm-hmm. that way about anyone. I feel that way about everyone. And so, it's not even a political issue. It's just no. we all just care about people's lives. Yes, yeah. I love that. That's perfect. <laughs> How? many women were in your cardiology program? Oh, that's a great question. So in my fellowship program, there uh, was, let's see, the year I, my fellowship program was one of the most, I think, women heavy programs that I can think of in the area. Amazing. When I, I know it was amazing. So when I started in my class, two of the four of us were female. And then the class above us had one female and the class above that had one female. So it was like a 40% female class, which is huge because nationwide, only 10% of cardiologists are women. So, yeah. (laughs) So how do you think we can change that? Like, yeah, it's, you know, what's good is that now I think the last few years has seen like a turn with med school admissions that I think that now over 50% uh, of medical students are female, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just making women in medical school understand that um, that cardiology is a great option for women. I think sometimes women feel like either de- just detracted from going to cardiology because they're worried about the lifestyle or because um, it's like a very male dominated field. And so mm-hmm. I can understand why people, you know, gravitate towards, cause I am like very much a girl's girl. So I like, I loved my OBGYN rotation. Um, I just didn't love OBGYN as a specialty, but I loved mm-hmm. the people and I loved working with women all day. It was like heaven for me, but I really liked 
um, cardiovascular disease. So I think that it's, um, you can still do a lot of women focused stuff in cardiology. I mean, women, the number one cause of death uh, for women is heart disease. So, I mean, you know, all of our patients are women and I can't, and and men, of course, but you can have tons of female patients. And so I think that one thing that's interesting is that so many uh, female patients who come see me are like, oh, thank goodness, finally, uh, you know, a female cardiologist. And so uh, I think it's just kind of getting the information out there about the career and making it Mm -hmm. less, less of a male oriented, male dominated career, because it's really amazing. And you can have you can have a crazy busy lifestyle in any specialty. You can have a chill lifestyle in any specialty. You can really, once you're done training, mm-hmm. you can really make it what you want. It, I've, I've, I've heard that from a few um, doctors that I have interviewed and is that like, there's still kind of that stigma or like misconception that you're like, you, you might not be able to be a mom who's like home with her kids all the time, you know, like the lifestyle, like you have to be, you know, more and married one to of the my hospital. One of my co-fellows is, um, she's the year below me. She's second mm-hmm. year cardiology fellow. She's going into interventional cardiology, which is like the most demanding of the cardiology specialties. And she is, she just had her second baby. So mm. I mean, uh, one of our, uh, cath attendings, one of our interventional cardiology attendings who I is like my idol. She's named Mara Caroline. She's just such a boss. She's this great interventional cardiologist. She has four children. So, you know, it is fully, fully possible. Anything is possible. (laughs) Yes. And I think, I think a lot of, um, I've also heard that, you know, a lot of women have to work, you know, 10 times harder just to prove their worth too. So like that also kind of, yeah can detract, um, a lot of women from joining the specialties and it just, it's so frustrating because it still feels like it's such a man's world in medicine. And I mean, you can feel like it, you can feel it, you can see it changing. Um, and like, that's what I'm here. And like, I want to do, you know, like empower nursing voices, empower doctor voices, you know, because I want to see that change. I want to see that equality. I want, you know, women to be taken for their skills, you know, not because they've had to work 10,000 times as hard Mm -hmm. for, you know, a a significant pay cut from (laughs) the men. Like there's, there's so much to fix and change, but I feel like we're finally like, on the cusp of like really changing and like making like a movement happen. Um, I agree. Well, shout out to your nurse listeners, because I, there is no way on this earth, any of us would get through our medical training without nurses. And to me, like, oh my gosh, shout out to the seventh floor heart failure nurses at Temple, the ICU nurses, (laughs) the CCU nurses, like they just were so amazing throughout my residency training. Um, and I think my biggest frustration is that I think there's still so much sexism in medicine. I mean, like mm-hmm. I grew up with parents that have told me my whole life, you could do anything you want to do. Like th- I never even had a second thought that it was girl versus boy or anything. Like my parents just have always right. been so supportive and like, you can do whatever you want to do. You want to be a cardiologist? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get into medicine and you're like, oh my goodness, it there is still so much sexism. And even the way- there was nothing that would piss me off more than like if a medical intern that was like a male, uh, and this happened often, like sometimes a surgery intern, et cetera, would back talk a nurse, a nurse who like works so hard and knows exactly what's going on with the patient and they're concerned about the patient. I used to lose my temper in the hospital and lay <laughs> it out on these surgery interns or the medicine interns if they back talked a nurse because there is a respect issue there and they wouldn't always do it with the male nurses. And so the mm-hmm. same thing with us as fellows. So now in my sixth year of training, I am about to be an attending physician in like a week. And like, even just the last time I was on call, I had a surgery intern who's like a first year, just out of med school person call me for a consult when I was on call and, um, you know, give me an attitude about my recommendations. And, and I'm like, you know what, like you've been a doctor for 30 minutes, like 
you called a cardiology <laughs> consult. Like, yeah. It's just the, every single female in medicine, whether you're nursing or, or you're a physician, we all feel it, that it still exists. And mm-hmm. all we, all we got to do is keep pushing through and, and changing. And I just appreciate nurses so much because their patients level for new interns in July must be through. <laughs> I just can't even, it's like crazy. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. And I know oh, all the God. nurses listening are like, hell yeah, Dr. Oh, dear God. <laughs> no, I just feel their pain. Like all of a sudden July, uh, you know, Joe Schmo, surgery resident, finishes train, <laughs> finishes med school and then tries to tell a nurse who's been on the floor for five years and knows exactly what she's doing. Like they're like, uh, okay, no. My, my, my rule number one for every intern always was listen to the nurses. And I'm not saying that Doctors don't know a lot. They do, but the nurses are the ones that are with the patients nonstop. They're the Mm -hmm. ones that are seeing clinical changes. Just go listen to the nurse, reevaluate the patient and do not give them attitude. Uh, There's nothing that drives me more crazy. And that's where I see sexism all the way up and down the, the, the line from like, even men our age who I see behaving this way. I'm like, can you not? I mean, I just called someone out on Twitter about this yesterday. Like I was so frustrated. Like, um, Michelle Kittleson is like the most amazing heart failure cardiologist at Cedar sinai Anyone who's listening, um, you need to follow her. Her name is Michelle Kittleson. She's a heart failure transplant cardiologist, um, at Cedar sinai She's on Twitter. She tweets, the most useful clinical pearls. She calls them Kittleson rules. And they're super, super brilliant, super helpful. And so she posted this uh, Kittleson rule yesterday that was about how, and nurses will love this. It was about how, hey, listen, we need to change the way we structure rounds. When you pre-round, you should be checking labs, checking the vitals, checking any, um, the nursing notes, check the overnight nursing notes, talk to the nurse. Um, But you don't need to physically see the patient and wake them up for pre-rounds. Wait till you yes. round your attending. Oh my God. Especially in the you, NICU. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. And let me tell you what the stream of comments on there were of men. This is a Cedar sinai heart failure transplant cardiologist who's so accomplished. It's ridiculous. An MD PhD. Men, interns, male interns in this thread saying, oh my God, you can't wait till rounds to see the patient. What if there's a clinical status change? Blah, blah, blah. Like making points that really just carry no weight. I lost it and was like the amount of men trying to, to mansplain a, a top world accomplished heart failure transplant cardiologist right now is absurd. Like, please just check yourself. And they're like interns and there's like an intern in dermatology. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> it's like, where do the, you get this level of confidence? And then, so it doesn't even end. It doesn't even, she's an attending who is so accomplished, so famous. She's a phenomenal physician. And there's still men mansplaining her in the Twitter comments, like uh, that are interns. So for the nurses that are listening, it's uh, we all feel your pain. We're all on the same page. We're all in this sexism fight together because it is frustrating. Oh my God. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I can and can't imagine that. But I mean, what she's talking about with rounds, like that's one of my like biggest frustrations, right? especially in the NICU where you're dealing with, you oh. know, these, these little sensitive lives that, you know, <laughs> you, the whole purpose of like developmentally appropriate care is bundling cares and like not disturbing them so much and it's like yes listen I know that like you need to come in and put your hands on this patient but these are the care times this is the time that I will be in there with them I will I will wait for you but like come in at that time like this kid's gonna eat at eight this kid's gonna eat at nine you know right one of those times and come and see them put your cystoscope on them listen to them I can tell you everything you need to know, but I swear to God, if you put your hands on that child and wake him up, he is going to Brady and his oxygen requirements are going right. to go right back up and you're going to break up all the progress I've made on him all right. night long. <laughs> right. And it's, it's called patient centered care. I had some yeah. guy, some guy who's like, I'm a hot, oh my God. So I reposted it on Instagram. I had some hospitalist who was like, I'm a hospitalist, soon to be cardiology fellow. And I think that this is wrong because what if you walk in on rounds and the patient is dead? And I was like, you know what, sir? Have a little more Someone's faith in the nurses. Cold blue exactly. <laughs> like have a little more. He's like, what about these heart failure patients that are sick? I'm like, have a little more faith in the nurses who are taking care of these patients while you were home sleeping. And mm-hmm. like, 
have more faith in the nurses. Like I yeah. cannot even, it just, and guess what? I do not see one message like that from a female. And listen, I'm not a man hater. I love my husband and my dad, mm-hmm. but I just think that in medicine, the sexism is still there and nurses and female doctors, we all are get, we all still get the effects of it. And so it's frustrating, oh, yeah. especially oh, when yeah. our goal is patient centered care. Like you said. Yes. I actually, um, <laughs> I've been, I've been talking to this, uh, one guy and he's in the medical field and I will, I will say that, but he, he told me, he's like, well, since meeting you and, you know, listening to the podcast and hearing your perspective on medicine from like, as a nurse, it's really changed how I interact with the nurses that I work with. And like, wow. I've made active changes in, you know, actually building a better relationship with my nursing staff. And That's I'm like, amazing. good for you. That good is a for you. good man. That is a good man. That is amazing. So. I mean, I can't even like, oh my God, I can think of, I am literally a cardiologist in like three days. And let me tell you the first time I was in the CCU by myself and a patient goes into this crazy SVT in the middle of the night. And I was like a second year medicine resident. And I will never forget this nursing Brianna. I look at her and she's like, okay, adenosine. And I'm like, okay, adenosine. And she literally was telling me what to do. She's like, adenosine 12. I'm like, okay, adenosine 12. Cause I got so nervous. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know how to run the rapid. And then mm-hmm. you know, the first time I ever ran a code, there was a nurse next to me being like, okay, it's time for epi. I'm like, okay, epi. And like, Dear God, nurses have no joke gotten every single doctor through training and they have been a huge part of our medical education. They have, they are like a massive component of what has made us doctors. And so for anyone to ever belittle or put down the people that contribute so much to our education, they're just out of their minds. Because literally, I, I can think of a million incidents where I've had nurses literally be the ones who've taught me how to do X, Y, or Z, you know? Well, I can't appreciate, I can't say thank you enough for that because I've always looked at nursing as, as a, it's a team sport, you know, team like sport. Yeah. you can't have one thing without the other. Like it, it's, it's, that's how you save a patient, you know, like every system, every player has to work together. And yeah, I mean, you might get some snotty nurses sometimes, but that's because they've been belittled their whole life. But you know what? I got to be honest. I think that you get what you put out there. Like I have never, I can honestly say this, you know, knock on wood, in six years of my training, I've never had a nurse sass me, but I've had so many male interns sass me. <laughs> like it's <laughs> ridiculous because I think that like I show nurses respect, they show me respect and we are, yeah. we know we're there for the team. There yeah. is so much, um, so I've never had, I've never had a negative experience for nurses because I think that we really do. I, every nurse I've ever worked with is like, God, I just have so many, I can think of so many, uh, just events in my head of where nurses taught me something and how the ego of people who think they just graduated medical school, that they know anything. It's like when you are an intern, literally just be a sponge and just know that you are just there to learn and listen to the mm-hmm. nurses, listen to your attending, listen to your upper level residents, be respectful and just have an open mind and get into that, like you said, team sport mentality yeah. because we're all there to help the patient. Yes. That is what it's all about. Like yeah. it's, you're, you're a team and you are saving that patient's life. Truth. Well, Dr. Bellardo, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Will it you was tell? So fun. Thank you oh, so much so for much having fun. me. You are you are welcome on any time. Oh my gosh! Thank um, you for having me. <laughs> please tell our listeners where they can find you. Plug your platforms. Plug IOPBM. Like everything that you're working on. Feel free to plug sure. it all again. So I am on social media, Instagram at Danielle Bellardo, B-E-L-A-R-D-O. So Danielle Bellardo, MD. And then I'm on Twitter at D-Bellardo, MD, because my name's too long. Um, and then Same. our organization's called IOPBM. And we, um, well, that's our practice, plus we have a nonprofit arm of it. And we are a headquartered in Newport Beach, uh, California. We're a multidisciplinary practice with, um, we have, all sorts of physicians. We have GI, um, I'm director of cardiology. We have uh, rheumatology, endocrinology, everything you can imagine. We have OBGYN, um, Natalie Crawford is an amazing OBGYN fertility. Oh, I love her. I love her. She's joined us. She's going to be doing our telehealth arm. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So we have a good group of people that um, we all follow evidence-based medicine. We um, advocate for evidence-based nutrition. 
we have courses that people can take at, um, I am literally in the process of getting CME and uh, CE credit for nurses, um, nurse practitioners, everyone. Um, and that's at learn with IOPBM is our Instagram handle for that. And that's it. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you for coming on. And I will link all of that in the show notes and cool. I'm about to go follow everything because oh, I, I also it. need to, you know, keep my CMEs up. So. Yeah, exactly. And now that none of us can go to conferences anywhere. I you know. know. What I mean? So we got to do it all virtual anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Danielle. Thank you, Danielle. I want to thank Dr. Bellotto again for taking the time to speak with me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have someone that would benefit from the online courses Dr. Bellotto offers, have them submit to scholarships at daniellebellardo.com. Follow Dr. Bellardo on Instagram at MD, and on Twitter at dbellardo. That's B-E-L-A-R-D-O-M-D. And if you aren't already, follow me at the WOMED or personally at DM Maltby. I love y'all. Catch you next week. WOMED out. Ooh.